couple of weeks ago, if you remember, Pastor Adam finished up Luke chapter 16. We took last week and went back to verse 18 and did a kind of a, a topical, a one-time sermon on looking at what the Lord says about divorce and remarriage and how that functions in the church and in our lives. And now we join back up kind of with the normal process, normal progress of thought here in Luke chapter 17. If you're new with us or just to get us back on the same page, you'll remember in Luke chapter 9, Jesus makes a turn in the book. It says that Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And so setting his face towards Jerusalem, he is setting his face towards, really setting his face towards the cross. Setting his face towards that Passion Week, the time when he would perform those redemptive work at, on the cross. And so from chapter 9 of Luke all the way to the end, chapter 24, we only have like a two or three month time span that is passing. And so we've been moving along this journey. It starts with a lot of sort of heavy conflict between Jesus and those who are opposing him, and that has morphed now into more teaching to his disciples as he would train and teach them on his way to Jerusalem. Chapter 17, the middle of chapter 19, Jesus will be in Jerusalem. So we're only a couple chapters out. I don't know the exact time frame, but we're within a month of Jesus reaching Jerusalem, a month of his crucifixion. So he continues on his journey. Beginning of chapter 9, when he begins on his journey, he commands that command of discipleship that most of us have heard, the simple one, follow me. And put into context of Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem and heading him towards the cross, when he says, follow me, he's saying, follow me to the cross. And then he gets more specific on his call of discipleship, and that is that you would take up your cross and follow him. That you would die to self empty of self, that you might gain Christ. It's this high cost of discipleship. And so all along the way, Jesus is, is making both this kind of pleading of people to enter the kingdom and the beauty of the kingdom and his authority demonstrated over the domain of darkness by his uh, power over sin, his power over physical ailments, his power over even the physical world. And yet, even in his pleading to enter the kingdom, he is warning them, you better count the cost before you enter. Because the kingdom belongs to disciples, and disciples are those who die to self and follow me. So we come to chapter 17. You remember, as we've gone through it, Jesus is is talking, and he, he usually is talking to one of three groups of people. It spreads a little beyond that. but Typically, it's one of three groups of people. One of them would be the Pharisees, right? We see that a lot. When you think of the Pharisees, there's sort of two ways to listen. It's important for us to know who he's talking to, so we sort of know how to listen, how to apply it in our own lives. When he's speaking to the Pharisees, it's sort of two ways. One, he's speaking to people who actively oppose the kingdom of God. The Pharisees are opposing Jesus at every turn. They're working against him. So some of us need to listen in that way as people who stand in opposition to the kingdom of God. And what is his word to us? He also speaks to the Pharisees as the religious sort of elite who who consider themselves as religious leaders and yet operate in this hypocritical way. And he's hit it time and time again where they set these standards that are impossible for others to keep and yet they themselves don't really even strive to keep those commandments. And then they stand in judgment over others, and it gives them a way to sort of keep others in submission to them with these impossible standards that they're able to keep. And when we hear them speaking to the Pharisees in this way, we should listen as 
the people of God, the religious people of God set apart and yet sometimes operating in a really hypocritical, judgmental way. So the Pharisees are one group. Sometimes he speaks to the crowds. When he speaks to the crowds, it's a mixed congregation. These generally are folks who are interested, intrigued, following Jesus because it's like nothing bigger is happening right now in the world than Jesus. So they're following him because it's interesting. Yet they have not entered the kingdom. They, they have not trusted in Christ. And that is where the call of discipleship goes out. When he says, you want to follow me, you don't just follow me from afar while it's interesting and, and you're having a fun and the crowds are kind of for me. You follow me when it gets difficult, when it gets tough, and that's the call to discipleship. The third group is he speaks to the disciples, and that's who he's speaking to this morning. So we want to make sure that we're listening that way. When he speaks to disciples, he's telling them, here is the character of the kingdom. Here is the nature of the kingdom. This is how you should live. And it is almost always countercultural. What we think is a normal way of living, the kingdom flips it on its head. And so he's told them primarily the kingdom is marked by humility, faith, and mercy. So when you listen to this, listen then, as disciples, are we actually living as kingdom people? The text today is going to kind of revolve around three words or three ideas. We'll look at them each. They sort of stand on their own. At the same time, they grow through the text. Three words are sin, faith, and service. Sin, faith, and service. So we'll jump in right at the beginning of chapter 17. And he said to his disciples, verse 1, temptations to sin are sure to come. That idea of temptation to sin, depending on what translation you have, might be a different word provided there. But it has the idea of an impediment or a stumbling block or an offense. And it's saying along the path, as you follow Christ, as you follow him in discipleship, just the reality is there's going to be temptation. There's going to be impediments. There is going to be chance to stumble And there's going to be stumbling. He kind of assures us of that. That is the reality of following following Christ. It's not suddenly there's an absence of temptation as we follow Christ, or even an absence of sin in our lives. That, that, That it's going to exist. And so he assures us that that is the reality. We have set been set free from the bondage of sin, but not free from the effects of the fall. But then that is followed up with a really, really severe warning. Again, in verse 1, temptation to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. An oracle of woe, of judgment. I mean, that is hyperbolic, strong, strong language. When we read something like that, we should pause to see what is the Lord warning us against before we just continue on. The millstone, if you can picture kind of, it would be two giant circles, basically, of of stone. The one on the bottom is stationary, the one on the top, if I were laying down, I still wanted my head and my feet, still wouldn't be on the ends of it. It's a giant stone 
bigger than any man could move. So typically what happens is you have the bottom one stationary. There'd be a pole that comes down through the top one. In that pole, there'd be an oxen on either side kind of tied to it, and they begin walking around, and that top stone turns, and it crushes up the grain, the wheat, whatever is down there, and they would begin to mill. So, I mean, we're talking just like a huge chunk of concrete. So when he says, you know, not that it's important you know exactly what a millstone is, except that you understand, he's saying, like, it's better for you to die on the bottom of the ocean than for you to cause someone to sin, to lead them astray in sin. Uh, the, the only conclusion is it's better for you to die on the ocean than to not be part of the kingdom of God. He's not calling here for perfection, that, that you would never sin and that you might not negatively affect someone. He's talking kind of, as we think of the Pharisees, of setting up this hypocritical life that is causing others to fall and stumble, where you hold others to a standard you never hold yourself to. That you live in such a way that the pattern of your life is other people see you and they, you are a constant faltering, stumbling block causing them to sin. Woe to you. I think of two applications right off the top of my head to parents. When it speaks of little ones to cause the little ones to fall away, that can be children or it can just be someone who's not strongly rooted in the faith someone who is young in the faith. I think of parents, the, the care that it takes that we are not hypocrites in front of our children. And again, when I say hypocrites, I'm not saying that you say sin is wrong, but sometimes you sin. That is all of us. I'm saying that you pretend you're one thing when you're something else. As children, if you see your parents out in public, you see them in church acting one way, worshiping, and they're all excited about the things of the Lord, and then back at the house, it's a totally different story. That's causing your children to fall, to falter. That's not a faith they're going to want to lay hold of, one that is of zero effect in their lives. I think of it in a more broadly sense, a more broad application, and I think we need to step back and think of this what we owe our brothers and sisters in Christ, what we owe the person beside us, person sitting beside us, what we owe our friends and those close to us, that your sin doesn't just affect you and isn't just an offense to the Lord. It causes others to falter and stumble. When you come in and you have a complaining, terrible attitude, and you're just complaining about everything, it causes others to start to despise the providence of God to miss the blessings of the Lord, to grow in their attitude of complaining. When something happens in your life and you decide instead of dealing with it, you're going to turn to gossip because, you know, it makes you feel better to start telling other people and slandering someone else. So you start getting with people and you slander someone's name and you just start bashing them. It's not just you sinning against that person. It's not just you offending the Lord. You're causing others to sin. Now they hear that. Now they're part of it. Now they're tempted to gossip. When someone comes to you and just like bashes someone, now you know things about that person, whether true or not. It makes it hard for you to love that person, to care for that person. 
I even think of it with more seasoned Christians and younger Christians. You know, the one who comes to Christ and they're really excited about the things of the Lord. They're giving themselves to the Word. They're super faithful. Whenever doors are open, they're there. They're looking to engage people with the Gospel. They're trying to put off the old things and put on the new things by the power of the Spirit. And then they see someone who's a seasoned Christian and says, well, they have no joy. I mean, they could care less about worship. They find anything to do besides attending church. I mean, I've never seen them share their faith. There's very little but difference in the choices that they make and how they would spend their time and their money and all that than anything else. And you almost train these young ones that just calm down about your faith. It's not that great. We cause others to stumble with our sin. When we think of it as being an offense to someone, it's not like you're purposely going out and thinking, oh, I'm going to trip this person up and cause them to sin. It's just a life of laziness and sinfulness on your own that affects others. There is a severe warning against that. It should cause us pause before we just start gossiping, before we start complaining, before we start bashing someone else, thinking, what is this doing to the one who hears me right now? And it's the exact opposite of what Scripture tells us to do. Hebrews tells us to consider one another, how we can stir one another up to love and to good works. That means to look at, to study, to think, how can I interact with this person? What can I do in their life to prod them on to good works, to prod them on to love for others and love for God? But instead, when we're just focused on what makes me feel better, well, it makes me feel better when I complain to somebody. It makes me feel better when I slander somebody else to this person. We consider ourselves, and in selfishness and in sinfulness, we cause others to stumble. Jesus lays out a severe warning about that, and then he continues in verse 3. We see that there's an appropriate way to deal with the sin of others. Verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. A lot of us know sort of that pattern of how we correct someone in their sin. But it's really, really hard to do. It's really difficult. You see, first of all, he says, pay attention to yourselves. That is, no one is called to be like the watchdog, that you're only looking for sins in others. He says, pay attention to yourselves in your own walk with the Lord. But when offense, when an obvious sin arises in somebody, and it needs to be dealt with, the way to deal with it is in love, in wisdom, go and speak to that person about the sin in their life. That, that's so hard. What's easier to do is to not say anything and just hold it against them. You know, like, I won't say anything. I'll just judge them in my mind and hold it against them and treat them poorly. Or I won't say anything to them about it. I'll just talk to other people about that sin. That's sort of the default mode. It, it's really hard to do that for... One reason is just, I mean, there's few people who just love conflict, who love that confrontation. And the people who love that, nobody likes them. So 
I mean, if you're a likable person at all, you're not someone who just like loves confrontation and conflict. So it's, it's out of our comfort zone to do that. Secondly, it, to do it exposes sin in your own life. I mean, rarely are you going to go to someone and, and confront them about a sin without some sin being exposed in your own heart and your own life in the midst of it. You need to be ready to deal with that and confess that. Another reason it's hard is because once you engage someone, you're in it with them. To go and to speak to someone about sin in their life means now you're engaged, you're thick in this with them. I don't just point something out to you and say, you know, you're a bad person and walk away. If it's done, it's done out of love, and it's how can we move forward together, and now you're more involved than maybe you want to be. And I think quite honestly, the reason it's hard is because rarely is it received well. I mean, that's just the reality of it. I read, a, you know, listen to podcasts, read a lot of blogs, the, the things that talk about Christian community. And there's this kind of over-glamorized view of like, man, I just confront and I tell people their sin and they tell me and it's great. That's not reality. It takes such a spirit of humility to confront, and it takes a spirit of humility to receive that confrontation. So when Jesus, this is so countercultural to what was just easier and more natural to do, but he calls them, if you are actually loving that person, and you are actually serious about the consequences of sin, the thing to do is to speak to them about it. But the final reason it's difficult is because in order to do that, you have to have already engaged them in a positive way. You must have already invested in them in a positive way. If I've never been friendly and invested in you and, and you know, put you above me when it came to something and, and, and you know, just invested in that positive way, I have no ground to stand on to come now and be like, hey, I know we haven't talked before, but I want to talk about the sin in your life. All of that makes it extremely difficult, and yet that is what Jesus says is kingdom living. Pay attention to yourself when there's sin in someone else, not because you want to confront, not because you're a bully, but in love, recognizing there's sin in my life as well. We're in this together for your own good, for the benefit of us all. How can we overcome this sin? How can we move forward together? I would encourage you, don't just default to gossip, and to quietly holding it against somebody. And I also encourage you, pray for a spirit. I know it's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for everybody. Pray for a spirit of humility that receives a word of correction and isn't immediately defensive and immediately trying to point out faults in somebody else. So that's the first step. The next step is of how sin is dealt with is the person is to hear, they are to repent, and as they repent, you are to forgive Again, forgiveness is a difficult call, especially the way that he explains it here. Verse 4, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I mean, it's one thing to when someone sins against you and you go through and they repent and you're kind of 
joyful at the conclusion you've met and you forgive them. But then when they turn around and do it the next day, it's like, oh, come on. And then the next day. I'm not going to make a lot of caveats here because Jesus doesn't. It's not the emphasis that he's wanting to make. There is a role of wisdom as you interact with somebody. But Jesus doesn't make these caveats. He's not saying, if you sense that it's really genuine repentance, and if there's an extended time where they get better, then forgive. He's saying seven times in a day. Again, it's one of those things where, for us, there's no way they don't deserve that. And yet, you expect it and depend on it for yourself. In your walk with God, you think of the sin that easily besets you. Did you one time repent of that and it's been good ever since? (laughs) Or do you have things in your life that you repent of and you genuinely mean it? You want that sin by the Spirit to be torn out and killed. You want to go hard after Christ and you, you repent. And two days later, that sin looks really attractive again and you pursue it. Then you realize it and you repent. And, and it happens again and again. I mean, I think all of us have those besetting sins in our lives where we think, I've repented of this dozens, maybe hundreds of times. And yet, how grateful and how amazing the mercy and grace of God that he would forgive us and receive and be faithful and just forgive us again and again and again. And yet when it comes to us dealing with someone, we hold them to a much higher standard. What? They messed up twice? Forget it. They do not earn my forgiveness. I think the easiest illustration is in a marriage relationship. I mean, I'll say something unkind to my wife. After my pride goes down a couple hours later, I'll apologize, repent of that. And like the next day I say something unkind to my wife. You know, it's the process that you go through. And the call isn't look at that person and judge how genuine they think you think they are. The call is when they repent, you must forgive. <clears throat> A quick definition of forgiveness. I've used this before, but I think it's helpful. There's a definition from Thomas Watson says, forgiveness is this, when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. You can break that down. Each little phrase comes from Scripture. It's not, I say, I forgive them, and I hold it against them forever. Now, there's things that forgiveness isn't. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for sin. It doesn't mean that it's instantaneous, that when you forgive them, you never battle with a spirit of forgiveness again. But that is what you are striving for, is this forgiving spirit. So Jesus lays this out, how is sin to be dealt with? By the time he goes through, sin is going to be present. There's going to be stumbling blocks. But woe to you if you cause someone to stumble. When there is sin, in a spirit of love, you need to talk to that person. And you need to be ready to forgive them again and again and again and again. 
I think the disciples realize this is impossible. This is really hard. So look at their response, and that moves us to our next point is faith. In verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. That's their response. I understand what you're saying, but there is no way. You need to increase our faith. Make us spiritual giants. We need to have greater faith if we're going to accomplish this. Listen to Jesus' response in verse 6. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. This verse and its parallel verses in the Gospels are so badly misapplied. There's a lot of heretical theology that comes out of it. If you turn on your TV and you see that person on there being like, If you just send us $100 in faith... I'm going to pray a prayer, and your mom will get over her cold, you know, whatever it is. You know, people make lots and lots of money with this kind of made-up theology about somehow it's all about the doing the impossible. And if there is just the right faith, then you name it, and it's yours. Sometimes you'll hear a critique even that way. Someone's sick. Let's say they, they have cancer. And you're praying for that person to get healed, and they just aren't. They're, they're not getting better. And the critique comes, well, you just don't have enough faith. If you really believed, they would get better. It's totally missing what's taking place here. First, the context is, how do we actually live like people of the kingdom? This feels impossible, what the Lord's telling us to do. And so they say, well, increase our faith. We need to be spiritual giants. We need a lot more faith than we have if we're going to act this way. And Jesus says, you're getting it all wrong. It's not the amount of your faith. It's the greatness of the object of your faith. It's the greatness of your God. It's not the amount. If you have faith like a mustard seed, basically, if you have the smallest amount of weak, faltering faith, but it's resting in a great, sovereign God, then he can do the impossible. It's not, build more faith. I need to be a giant. It's, no, fill me with a greater vision of Jesus. Fill me with a greater vision of God and his sovereign power. Not that I'm a spiritual giant, but that I serve the sovereign king and creator over all things. That the finished redemptive work of Jesus Christ truly is defeating the domain of darkness. He talks about uprooting that mulberry tree. It's just an example of something that seems impossible. Reading a little bit in a commentary about a mulberry tree, I guess it's got like one of the most complex root systems out of any shrub or tree that's like eight times the size of what you see is what the roots are doing down below, and it's kind of this big knotted ball of roots. Even after a mulberry tree dies, I guess the roots can live for like another 600 years, unless what I was reading was wrong, but that's what I was reading in commentary. Wikipedia, they're never wrong. Anyways, it's hard to like uproot a mulberry tree and throw it in the ocean. Obviously, there's nowhere in Scripture where that's happening, I can't imagine why there'd be any purpose for you to have the power to uproot a mulberry tree. It's just an illustration, an example of, you say, give me more faith, because what I commanded seems impossible. And I'm telling you, it's not the amount of your faith. God can do the impossible, and he can do it very simply. 
we said this before, even weak and faltering faith in a sovereign and holy God is saving and sanctifying. So the prayer isn't so much, Lord, make me a spiritual giant, but it's give me more trust and give me a greater vision of how great my God really is. So he points us to the object of our faith, not the size of our faith. And then we move to the last point in this kind of odd little parable that he gives of the unworthy servant. We look at service. This kind of grows then out of this idea. It's not how impressive or spiritual we are, the amount of faith that we have, but it is about our God. I'm going to just read this little section again, and then we'll make some comments on it, and we'll be done. Verse 7 says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. It would be like this. Let's say you're hired to do a landscaping job for someone. And so you're hired for eight hours. You've got some work inside to do and some work outside. And so you're outside. It's hot. You're doing the weed eating and the mowing and you're scooping the poop. And you're doing all the stuff you've got to do in the yard. And you're all filthy and sweaty and dirty. When you come to the door, do you expect the person to be like, oh, that's amazing that you did that. Why don't you come in? Don't worry about changing it. Sit down on the couch. I'll turn on Netflix for you, get you something cold to drink, and you just relax. No, they're, they're paying you to do the work. It's expected that you do the work. And now if you're coming inside to work for them, they expect you to get cleaned up the way that's appropriate, come inside, and keep working. You're getting paid. This is your duty. This is what you're obligated to do. That's the same thing he's saying in this little parable. You know, you work for this guy. You're outside working. At the end of the day, it's not like, wow, I can't believe you did your job description. It's no, keep working. When I'm fed and done, then you can relax and do your thing. And so he's speaking now to how we view our work for Christ. I think it's important. The scripture tells us how we should think about ourselves, and it speaks in different ways. There's times where it tells us to consider ourselves as sons and daughters, as a treasured possession, as one whom God rejoices over and one whom God sings over, as unique, as valuable, as having purpose, creating the image of God. And and that is true. And we need to consider ourselves in that way. And yet at the same time, it's equally true that he tells us to think of ourselves as depraved sinners, dead in our sin, hopeless, unworthy, and even in our best efforts, gaining no merit, only more condemnation. And that's how he's speaking here. It's not about moving back to the faith conversation. It's not about make me a spiritual giant. It's about our God being great. 
And so when he speaks about our service, whatever we can do for the Lord, at its best, is just fulfilling the command that he would give us. As you, it, it speaks this. Maybe you've been confused at times. As you see the Old Testament and the New Testament, often related are obedience and blessing, or faith and reward. And they're paired together. How do obedience and blessing fit together? How do faith and reward fit together? Sometimes when you read Scripture, it feels like it's, okay, I know I can't merit God's grace and blessing, but it feels like he's saying, do this and I'll bless you. Like you are earning it. So how do they fit together? Because they definitely do. Because the truth is, the way of obedience is the way of blessing. The way of faith is the way of reward. But they don't relate this way, that okay, I was obedient, and now God is obliged to me to bless me the way I want when I say. Kind of that, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back type of thing. That's not the way obedience and blessings work, as if somehow now, because of your work for God, he is obligated to you at some level. The same thing with faith and reward, that somehow you have shown enough faith that now he is obligated to you to reward how you think. He is going to heal that person how you wanted him to heal that person because your faith has earned that. This is a large part of what Luther's 95 Theses, the whole Reformation as we celebrate Reformation 500, was about. Was this idea of earning up extra merits, of storing up extra merits by things you do, by money you give. And so you are kind of getting a storehouse of merits that now God is obliged to do something for you, whether it's you know, spring your relative out of purgatory or give you some sort of blessing. You're earning these favors and these merits that now God is obligated to you at some level. And we're corrected on that in a lot of different ways. One, I think there's just four things that this teaches us about the relationship of blessing and obedience or faith and reward. One is this, that Jesus wants us to learn that our obedience is not leverage to claim obligation on God. What we've said. Like the servant, he didn't do a good job working, so now Jesus is obligated to do something for him. The master is obligated to do something for him. Our service and our work doesn't obligate Jesus, put him at our disposal in some way. Secondly, God does not reward us based on our performance in some sort of you-scratch-my-back-I'll-scratch-your-back way. Yes, the way of God, the way of obedience is the way of blessing. But it doesn't, again, you don't get to name the place and the time and how you want God to dispose that blessing to you. Thirdly, Jesus makes it clear in this passage that we ought to serve God in humility and gratitude in love, and in joy. In other words, service of God is not a means to an end. We don't serve God as a means to an end, unless it's God's glory, maybe. It should be the the end. But it's not serving, I'll do this for God, and hopefully he'll do this for me. I remember playing baseball growing up, having those thoughts as I'm playing, like, You'll just let me get a hit right now, God. I swear I'll like do my devotions tomorrow. You know, it's like you're you're bargaining somehow, or even the night before, you know you got a big game coming, and so it's like, I gotta be like extra godly right now because 
I really can't afford to make another error. And so if somehow, like, God tick for tack is going to, you've earned something. But our service to him is out of joy and gratitude. Finally, God deals with us by grace. Perhaps you've heard of the debtor's ethic. We sing songs that talks about being a debtor to mercy or a debtor to grace. But the idea of the debtor ethic, being in debt to God is correct, but the idea of the debtor ethic is such a bad way to live. And that is to think that I'm in debt to God's grace, and so I have to live godly, and I have to do good things in order to kind of even that scale to repay God. But you realize every good thing you do is decreed by God, granted you by God, sustained by the Spirit. It's only putting you further in debt. That's what I'm saying. Be like, you owe him $10, and then he gives you a dollar, and you give it back to him. You know, like, that doesn't make sense. Every good thing you accomplish, it's not because you're a spiritual giant. Remember the weakest, smallest amount of faith in a great God. It's the great God, not your faith that is great. And so that is how he's saying, that, that's how faith and reward, that is how obedience and blessing, yes, they belong together, but not in a way that God is ever obligated to you, not in a way that you ever begin to pay back God. He gave you Jesus Christ. That's the greatest gift. You never can repay that. What does Romans 8 say? With him, he gave you everything that you need. He gave you all things. All things for life and godliness that you might persevere, as Rome back further in Romans 8, to be conformed to the image of his son. He gave you Jesus Christ. It's the greatest gift. He's giving you all things with it. And then Romans 8, he's working all things. He's given them to you and he's working them in your life. For your good, for his glory. So that in Romans 8, 37, you might be more than a conqueror in all things. He's using them all for your perseverance and endurance to the end. There's nowhere in there where it's like, look what I've brought to the table to repay you, God. You're just going further and further and further into debt as he grants you Jesus Christ and with him freely gives you all things and then by his grace works all things and then through his grace brings you through all of the difficulties of life and at the end you're nothing but a trophy of grace and that is beautiful. But a trophy of grace is an unworthy servant. So again, remember, he's not saying unworthy servant and that think of yourself as worthless. An unworthy servant is the one who belongs in the king, who is bought with a price, who is a son, a daughter of God, who is precious, whom the Psalms say that God rejoices and sings over you. It's not the spiritual giant who by faith thinks they're accomplishing things. It is the one who in humble and contrite heart turns to God again and again. So as disciples, Jesus turns to us this morning, and he gives us three words, three things to think about, three ideas. One is sin. It's going to be around. Pay attention to yourself and don't cause others to fall. There's huge warning in that. Watch yourself. Watch how you talk. Watch how you complain. Watch how you gossip, because it affects others, not just yourself. 
And then we need to be for one another. And by being for one another, when we see sin in someone's life, we lovingly, as a friend, not because it's convenient, not because we want to, not because it's easy, because we love that person and we want their best. We go to them, we talk to them about it. We need to be able to do that and receive that and then be quick to offer forgiveness again and again and again. You don't get to be the judge of how genuine you think it is. They repent, you forgive. That's impossible. It's not, because even in our weak faith, we have a great God. And the blessing that comes with obedience is just more and more and more grace. Not merit to pay him back, but grace and grace and grace lavished upon us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its instruction in our heart and in our lives. We thank you that it speaks to us immediately where we are. Lord, I pray that when we leave here, we'll be more careful about leading others into sin, causing others to stumble, not on purpose, but just by laziness and guarding our own hearts and guarding our own lives. Lord, that you'll paint in our hearts and our minds a vision of God that is much greater, that is much more as the Bible portrays them and not how we kind of just imagine them to be after our image. Lord, and in doing that, Lord, we will depend upon you and your grace as chosen and precious children and as unworthy servants turning to you for grace and mercy moment by moment.